Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. And you can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Oh, a magnificent goal from Darren Huckabee! Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Hello and welcome back to Quickly Kevin Will He Score Series 11. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. He's back again, Michael Marden. A zig, a zig, ah. How are we? Good. It's good I'm to be so back, excited. isn't it? Back. Oh, really so excited. good. I would say this is the most excited I've been for the start of a Quickly Kevin series. Yeah, it's a yeah. good series. We've got some great guests already in the bank. Plus, as we will discuss in a minute, it's segueing straight into our return to modern international football as quickly Kevin has another another month in the 21st century and wasn't the last one just the most emotional. But we're not here to talk about the 21st century. That'll be the last mention of it until <laughs> November. I think as well, it's worth saying off the top, we've had a sensational transfer window. It's been incredible. Every single inquiry we've made has pretty much resulted not in all a signing. Not all of them, let's be honest. But there's one massive one we lost out on. I won't say who it is, but I will say his first name is in the titles of this podcast. If you, get, if you can crack that clue, you'll work out who I'm talking about. But apart from that, it's been a sensational window. It's going to be a great series. It's, it's set up to be a great series. Until the quiz, which I imagine will be quickly Kevin favourites, every guest is new this series. We, we have not repeated a guest. Uh, we will return with some old favourites over the World Cup, obviously. Um... But Chris, shall we get on with it? Let's have some 90s o'clock news. From the headquarters of ITN, News at 10, with Chris Scull. Neil and Christine Hamilton's World Cup song comes to light. And man gets a job in football from playing thousands of hours of championship manager oh very exciting very exciting what's the what what story are you most excited about well the hamiltons <laughs> awful, okay awful people okay so what i'm gonna do um, the video is just so good that i'm gonna i'm gonna send it to you and i want you to just just watch just watch the first minute so what, of it. when did they release them their football song was it a world cup song 2006 world cup very rare I hear a World Cup song that I haven't heard. And, and you decide yourself, is this up there with New Order? Is this up there with Spice Girls, France 98? England a jolly D. Just give it a, a quick listen for the first minute. Hmm. Not use your hand. 
It's watched by people on their tellies. Nylon shirts and big beer bellies. England in Germany. England are jolly tea at the pool. Okay, I get the gist of that. We don't need to hear any more of that. That is incredible, isn't it? Just, just remind you of the lyrics there. There is a team who we call England. And actually, when I read these lyrics, it, it just made me read like, these are written by someone who has no idea what football is. Well, I'll tell you who it's not written by, the Hamiltons. <laughs> Do you think? No, 100%. Is it, But it's so bad that it's like, you couldn't have got a ghostwriter to write this. Go on. There is a team we call England because they're all from this pleasant land and they play a game called football. You have to kick, not use your hand. It's watched by people on their tellies with nylon shirts and big beer bellies. England, a jolly D. I just don't believe it is the Hamiltons. Even in the video, you see the you see their lyric sheet and it says England, a jolly D. And then below it, it says sung by Neil and Christine Hamilton. It doesn't say by, it doesn't even, like even on the lyric sheet they've been given, they've not put by Neil and Christine Hamilton. What is the economics of this? Like, it doesn't what, make any sense, does why, it? Who thought there was money in this? Was there money in it? It's after the bubble of the music industry. Is it on Spotify? It's, well, yeah, it's, it's on DJ. It's on quite a few platforms, and I googled it just to check that this was actually real. It's in quite a few places. It's got thirty-three thousand views on YouTube, so I would actually say that's a bit of a success. No, yeah, but you go on Spotify, and it's one of those songs on Spotify where it won't specify the figure. It just says less than a thousand. You know, when you <laughs> occasionally see those ones that are less than a thousand. There's no way they've made any money out of this. This is my take on it. Some. Family friend, posh kid, he's in his 20s, he's a bit of a drifter, and he wants to work in music. They're doing it as a favour to him. Do you know what I mean? That's how I'm imagining it. Like a yeah, friend's, that's, that's interesting. A friend's son. And they've gone through with this. He, They've thought it would be a hit because they've got a completely misjudged view of their place in you know, the UK. Because being booked as the quirky act on something doesn't, mean you're loved it means that your books it doesn't mean that you'll sell records do you know what yeah. I mean? that no one is buying that it's, <laughs> it's a total the, waste of the world's time the, but the video has very gcse vibes doesn't it it's like oh someone just got a camcorder and just shot this yeah but thousands of pounds would have been spent making the yeah. video editing the video making the getting bring, studio yeah Pressing the CD, getting distribution on the CD. I mean, are they distributing this to our price and whatever Surely, it would have been? No, I just don't. The fundamentally, you can't even imagine someone at our price going put that on the shelf. I, I think the other thing of this is it sums up the 2006 golden generation and the absolute bullshit circus that was around the England <laughs> team at that point. It totally sums up that whole thing, how it was commercialized. It was kind of all about celebrity and it was kind of like there was no kind of artistry to that era of the England team. I think England a jolly D says everything about Sven Goran Eriksson's England. <laughs> this is the level of distraction. This is the level of distraction we all had as a nation. Yeah. I've been saying for years that you, you just can't play Neil and Christine Hamilton together in the same song. Like you've got to split <laughs> them up. You, you need someone else in there with them. You do you think it should have been Christine Hamilton and Gareth Barry? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it's one or the other. It doesn't yeah. work. It just Owen Hargreaves, come on. Just harmonising with Neil Hamilton. That would have worked. <laughs> Let's move on, because that's, that's a horrible start to the series. Yeah, it, it, well, also, if you've got a, a more obscure World Cup song, and any, anything else like this, hello at quicklykevin.com. There must be more obscure stuff. As we get prepared for the World Cup, it'd be good to have full knowledge of the catalogue of England songs yeah. that are out there or other uh, home nations. Thank you to Jamie Hasty for bringing that uh, bringing that in anyway. Uh, thank you to Tom Smith for bringing this in. A guy has played so much championship manager that he got a job in football. So I don't oh. know if you've... Do you know who's an assistant manager of Standard Liège? Of course you don't. No. But he's a guy called William Still. He spent hundreds, nay, thousands of hours playing championship manager as a kid. When he then, through his kind of playing football manager, he then did a course in Preston to become a football coach. And he started off as under-14s manager at Preston North End. And he's now worked his way up oh, to assistant wow. manager at Stanley That's Age. incredible. And he traces his career back to playing football manager, championship manager, as a kid, last year at Standard Liège, he was uh, he came up against Lionel Messi, so it's wow. actually happened. Would you want that as your life? Uh, you're a big football manager player, Michael. Would you trade this for being the assistant manager of Standard Liège? Not not in a heartbeat. No, <laughs> no. I, I think on that training pitch today, it's, but it's not the same. It's, it isn't the same. I think I'd rather have football manager. a statue of me built outside Plymouth Stadium because I won the Premier League 11 years in a row. I'm, I'm just going to stick to it remotely. <laughs> can I say on the football manager thing, I did, can I just do, do you remember last series we discussed what would happen if you tra- got transported back in time to 1996 and you had to make Liverpool yeah. uh, champions of Europe and someone has sent in a 10-point plan uh, can I just oh, run, yes. Do you yes, want me to just please. run you through it? Yeah, this is from great. Daniel Cashin. Okay. I've decided a 10-step process to ensure Liverpool win the Premier League and dominate the footballing landscape in the late 90s. This is You're sent back in time with your current knowledge, your made manager. What do you do? Obviously, no one knows you've got your current knowledge. Number one, sign Yap Stam. On the 1st of January 1996, PSV would sign t- uh, 23-year-old Yap Stam for £1.35 million. That's an upgrade. Good idea? Great idea. Solid. Number two, contact Barcelona about the availability of their translator, Jose Mourinho. (laughs) Mourinho would probably be installed as a system manager at Anfield and placed in charge of training and tactics. Good idea. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Really think, nice. uh, I wonder how Barcelona would take that call. Like, you what want the translator? Trans- what do you want with yeah, the translator? Yeah, yeah all right. <laughs> yeah, fine. Yeah, good yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Don't worry about a fee. Jeez. Yeah. Number three, sell Steve McManaman. <laughs> there was a rumor of a £12 million transfer to Barcelona in 1996. He then went on a free three years later. Cash on him. In. Number four, sell Rob Jones, who was regarded as the best defender in the 90s at this point. Uh, he was in the PFA team of the year in 94, 95, but his career was about to be blighted by injuries, which you know is about to happen. So cash in <laughs> while you can. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Number three, exp- uh, number five, exploit the Bosman rule, um, which happened in December, 1995. Uh, one high profile target would be Edgar Davids, who left Ajax on a free. I don't think you could do that. I think Juventus might beat you to that. Number six, strict dress code to stop the Spice Boy image taking off. <laughs> What is the strict dress code, though? All white suits. Strict dress dress code in brackets, no white suits. And players from taking modelling contracts and enforce a strict no booze stroke nightclub policy. Mourinho would help implement a level of professionalism. Number seven, buy French players. (laughs) (laughs) 
this is a bit. Replacement man with 24-year-old Zinedine Zidane, who was allegedly turned down by Newcastle and Blackburn at this point, along with Bixenti Lisa Azu, who's available for just 1.67 million. Two more Frenchmen would be brought in from Monaco, a 25-year-old holding midfielder called Emmanuel Petit and an 18-year-old unknown winger called Thierry Henry. Number eight, sign Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. That is a good one, isn't it? <laughs> it's weird how he's like, that like four French players are lumped into one point, but Oli Gunnar Solskjaer gets, his, he gets a whole point to himself. You're quite right, yeah. too. Uh, without Solskjaer, Manu would struggle for goals on 1997 and not win the treble in 1999. Open brackets. I would caveat that under no circumstances Solskjaer should be allowed back to Anfield as a future manager. (laughs) (laughs) Number nine, develop young English talent. Frank Lampard, fresh from a loan spell at Swansea, could easily be tempted to Anfield by his cousin Jamie Redknapp. Looking further afield, an eight-year-old Wayne Rooney would be signed up for my (laughs) rivals Everton. Eight-year-old. I don't know. You'd have a you'd have a tough job on your hands there. Number ten, register the website. The website LiverpoolFC.com would not be registered until April 1997. Be churlish for me to suggest this would have been a priority in 1996, but I'd like to think the board would be impressed by my forward thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Might hide my lack of ability in the coach. So his team he's given me there is a front three of Solskjaer, Fowler and Henri, midfield three of Petit, Zidane and Davids, and then a back four of, oh, Cafu, he signed on a Bosman, I think, Lisa Azou, Stam, and he's kept Mark Wright at centre-back and he's kept David James. There we go. That's really wow. nice. Really, yeah. really lovely. Yeah, so, I, think, I think you'll do it off the back of that. Although Mark Wright's going to have to get dropped sooner or later, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, surely. Thank you to Daniel Cashin for that. Shall we have some... that? I mean, that counts as electronic postbag. Just a quick couple more electronic postbags? Yeah. Let's have some. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the electronic postbag. You've got mail. Do you want a... I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a really good radio phone-in call. And then I'm going to give you a um, incredible what might have been sliding doors moment. Okay. So first, this is from Ian Hughes from Liverpool. Uh, after the David Seaman's wife calling Capital FM discussion of last series, I'm not sure we've talked about this before. I don't think we have. Have we ever discussed uh, this caller phones up Talk Sport to advocate that Hearts goalkeeper should be Scotland's number one? Have you heard this? I have heard this, but it's great. This yeah. We haven't done it, have we? No, no I don't think we've done it on here. About Scotland's goalkeeping options. I'm wondering, you know, about keeper room selection for the Scotland squad. Yep. You um, must know that the Hearts have got a good team. We we get Colin Cameron in the squad, mm-hmm. Stephen Presley. Yep. I just don't know why for at least three seasons he's been ignoring Annie Nemi. <laughs> Annie Nemi? Aye, I don't know why he doesn't get a game. For Scotland? Aye. He's from Finland? He's what? He's finished, isn't he? He's not finished. He's only 28. No, he's finished. He's from Finland. What do you mean? That's what he, he, his nationality is finished. He's from Finland. He's not Scottish? No. Oh, I thought he was Scottish. He's <laughs> from Newcastle United. There you go. <laughs> I love that. My favourite bit in that is where he goes, he's finished. He's not finished. He's only 28. Yeah, that's, that is a great love bit of writing. That is a superb, like, that is, that is a lovely bit of kind of carry-on style sitcoming. I really <laughs> enjoyed that. Now, for a sliding doors moment. Are you ready for this? This is... So, do you want to know how Daniel Amakachi making a decision above his manager led to a complete change in um, the musical history of 
British football. Okay. Yeah? Okay. So this starts with Daniel Amakachi. So this is from Mark Jones. Mark Jones writes to us, um, long-time listener and love the podcast. And he tells us this about Daniel Amakachi. He's a Spurs fan. He said, of course, we came a cropper in the semi-final of the FA Cup in 1995 to a less celebrated import, Daniel Amakachi. With the match finally poised and Spurs in the ascendancy after pulling a goal back, Amakachi, always less than prolific, managed to score twice to put the game beyond doubt. What is less well-known and only came out later was that Amakachi was apparently subbed himself onto the pitch while Everton's main striker, Paul Rydett, was receiving treatment on the sidelines. He'd been told to warm up and took the opportunity with the manager preoccupied to blag to the trainer that he was being sent on. Rideout was okay to carry on, but by that time, the deed was done. So in the semi-final, which was won by Daniel Amakachi, Everton versus Spurs, Daniel Amakachi wasn't brought on by the manager. He basically lied to the trainer and said, I'm coming on, was subbed on for Paul Rideout, meaning Everton went to win the FA Cup. Now, how does that affect English football history? This from Annie Roder. This story is directly from the horse's mouth. As your listeners will know, the farm's infinite classic, Altogether Now, was the official Euro 2004 song of the England national team. However, this belies a role the song could and should have played in the English national psyche. In 1995, the farm and their lead singer, Peter Hooton, had been asked to provide the official Euro 96 England song with their early 90s hit, Altogether Now. Having agreed this, little did the rest of the Liverpool supporting band know that the solitary Everton supporting member had, without their knowledge, recorded the Everton FA Cup final song, all together now for Everton. Upon hearing this, the FA decided the proximity of this to Euro 96 meant the song was no longer suitable and instead decided to commission Badil Skinner and the Lightning Seeds. What? No way! And the rest wow. is history. So oh. the sliding doors moment is had Daniel Amakachi not decided to ignore Joe Royal's orders and bring himself on without the manager's knowledge, not only would Everton have missed out on their only trophy since 1995, but football's coming home would never have seen the light of day. That's amazing. Isn't that That's incredible? incredible. That's from James Corkill. During the Euros last summer, we could have been all singing all together now. What do you think that would have taken off in the same way? I don't absolutely think it would. not. No absolutely chance. not. Isn't that incredible? And I wonder whether Badil and Skinner say they'd got the France '98 song. I don't think it would have caught the mood in the same way because it would have been for the wrong summer. Yeah, it needed well, to be a home Had three lines been released in 1998 rather than 1996, do you think it would have been as big a hit? No, absolutely not. No, it needed it needed that summer of '96 in a home tournament, didn't it? It needed Gaza. It needed all that stuff. So had it Everton lost to Spurs that day, but can three I, lines uh, might can not I, exist. Can I ask a question? So Joe Royal's the manager of Everton. Yeah, and how does how does Daniel Amakachi get past him? Because isn't he on Royal's distracted doing something? <laughs> While Paul Rydell's injured and Amakachi subs <laughs> himself on for Rydell. Surely Royal is in or near his technical area. He has to see that Amakachi's yeah, coming on. Yeah. Does there come a point where Royal's embarrassed about what's happening? He's like, oh, he's bringing himself on. Like, I'll pretend I, I, don't think he's, I don't think he says he's bringing himself on because he's trying to stop him. He must look up and Amakachi's on the pitch, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, there's no point when he... he Royal doesn't observe it happening. Like... <laughs> It must happen before he's even spotted it. What a high-stakes gamble. Because if he doesn't score in that game, even if Everton win and he doesn't score, 
I think his career at Everton is over. What, what a complete undermining of your manager's authority. If if I was royal, I would have subbed him off as soon as I noticed. I'd have subbed him straight <laughs> off just just to teach him and the and the squad. A but list. if you're royal, do you want to draw attention to that? Yeah, to the, the wider fact world? you've lost control. <laughs> <laughs> the fact your, be- your bench is deciding themselves when they come on. It's incredible to think that three lives might not have existed if Daniel Amakachi hadn't subbed himself on. I would yeah. love listeners to expand out from that. What else might not have happened? So had Three Lions not happened, had that altogether now been the official song, like roll out the butterfly effect, where else yeah. does the kind of back to the we future narrative go? sliding going? doors, butterfly effect moments. We call it sliding turnstiles. Your sliding turnstiles moments uh, in which 90s football could have gone another way. And what we'd like is like a string of a few things. Do you know what I mean? I don't, we don't just want if Man U hadn't bought Cantona, they wouldn't have won the league. We want three or four things that one thing could be said to have directly led to another in the way that Daniel Amakachi has put Ian Brody's kids through university. <laughs> Do you think uh, without that soundtrack to that summer, the nation doesn't get swept up in Euro 96 so much? There's less pressure on the semi-final. It comes to the penalty shootout. Gareth Southgate is less tense come the penalty shootout. More confident. Slots home his penalty. England progress. And we get beat by the Czech Republic in the final. <laughs> and there is a w- world in which Carol Poborski's, yeah, wins the Euro. I don't believe that... I, th- I believe Three Lions was a soundtrack to that summer. I don't believe that summer would have been less special had it not existed in that way. I don't believe it... I don't believe it kicked it further... Did, do you know what I mean? I don't believe it created that summer so much as soundtracked it. Well, yeah. yeah, but I think there's an argument in that, like, a great dish, a great food dish... The seasoning doesn't create the dish, you know, no. the meat's there, the yeah. veg is there, the sauce is there, but but it requires just the right amount of salt or paprika or coriander. <laughs> and you can taste it and go, yeah, I remember eating that summer of 96, but it's not going to be as memorable meal as it is. I think if Daniel Amakachi doesn't bring himself on, quickly Kevin doesn't exist. Wow. wow. Well, I, 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 see, I debate that Three Lines now is even associated with Euro 96. I believe Three Lions has transcended it to such a degree. If you listen to Three Lions now, I don't believe you're transported back to Euro 96 because you've listened to it interminably every two years for the last 25 years. I I think you're right. I actually, when I think of Three Lions now, think of the resurgence more than the initial release. I think so, yeah. I think of Harry Maguire against Sweden. There we go. If you've got anything more, this is how to get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Now, before we get into our guest, uh, the incredible Peter Reid, um, some very exciting news from Quickly Kevin Towers. As we said, this series will be leading into our big World Cup coverage. And uh, in preparation for that, we are relaunching the Quickly Kevin Fan Club. It's been going for a couple of years and we thought, how can we make this a better product? So we've relaunched it. It's now available on another slice. That's another slice 
Go there and it's a couple of quid cheaper. So as a member of the Quickly Kevin Fan Club, you will get the brand new episodes seven days early on the Another Slice app. And they are extended episodes and they are ad-free. We're also going to be doing two exclusive bonus episodes every single month. Yes, right now we're going through Steve Bruce's second book, Sweeper, about two-thirds of the way through that with Ivo Graham. And then you've also got the first Steve Bruce book over there on the Quickly Kevin Fan Club, plus a brand new bonus episode this month as well. And two bonus episodes going forward every single month. Plus, the old favourite, we're bringing it back, your name in the title sequence. Each week, a different person's name will be in the title sequence scoring a goal. We've got to admit, we did have this in originally and we completely fucked it up, didn't we? And then everyone was like, but that's one of my favourite features. So we're bringing it back and under pain of death, if Michael messes this up or I forget to record one or Chris forgets to record one, we will donate £100 to a charity of Matt Letitia's choice. <laughs> that is the situation we're in now. This is going to happen each week because otherwise we that is some dirty money. Also, for any future live shows, Quickly Kevin Fan Club members will be getting a pre-sale link so they get in there, the opportunity to buy tickets before everybody else. We're also going to experiment with a QK Games Master episode on video. We'll be playing some classic video games, putting a review up, and that will also be available on another slice. And as we fine-tune the fan club to perfection, obviously we brought stuff in. We've also realised what really, really didn't work. Michael, would you like to fill us in on that? Well, I think we have to hold our hands up and be accountable to say that uh, the merchandise situation was perhaps a tiny bit too ambitious on our part. Now, any former QK what and... Worst thing we've ever done in our careers? I think probably, yeah, one of the worst mistakes I've ever made in my entire life. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't even really overseeing it, but but this will tell you how much of a logistical nightmare it is, partly on our part, but a lot of it to do with Brexit. I have, since we started the fan club, moved house twice. I'm now in my third property and I still get WhatsApp messages from my former formal landlord saying, um, yeah, Michael, a package has turned up. Uh, it's a return from Shanghai and it'll be a Nigel Martin top five <laughs> drinks fridge magnet that whoever the listener is in that part of the world just hasn't claimed or has been sent back because the import duty hasn't been paid. So we've decided that the merchandise side of it is going to move to our shop. We will have some limited edition items with the QK fan members will get first access and a nice discount too, but we are no longer going to be sending out items throughout the year. Now, those people that are eligible, historically, we've got some good stuff coming your way. Don't worry about that. But One final goodbye. One but final farewell. Let's uh, just say we didn't quite realise how difficult it would be to send out thousands and thousands of fridge magnets to different people all around the globe and get everyone's address, send them out. And we'll be honest, we thought it'd be much better to knock a bit of money off the amount that you're paying per month and give you a cheaper but more reliable service from the Quickly Kevin Fan Club. Is that how we'd all agree on it? I think that's fair. But basically, we, we had the Fire Festival fridge magnets, is what we're trying to say. <laughs> <And the> fire, <laughs> yeah. But I tell you what's better than a fridge magnet. Now, if you're in the fan club, you get the chance with all of our football guests to ask a question. We're asking for your questions for football guests. So each time we have an interview, we'll be batching it out on the message board and via email to all of our fan club members, send in your questions. We've already asked Peter Reid what his favourite Chinese in his Liverpool was in the 80s. We've asked him whether his brother wrote questions on Question of Sport. We didn't want to know these answers. These are the questions of our fan club members. 
and you get that exclusive opportunity to talk to whoever we interview, whether it be Darren Eadie or Pele. We will be asking your questions. And finally, the big one, during the World Cup, we will be carrying on with our coverage that we loved doing so much during uh, the painful last Euros. Uh, Three episodes a week as we follow the tournament through and England to their inevitable victory in the one World Cup no one actually wants to win. There you go. And it's cheaper than ever. We've knocked a couple of quid off. Head over to the Quickly Kevin fan club. It's at anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. You can also get the Another Slice app and listen on there. Loads of extra content to be had. And also, if you just want to register for free, you can also get chapter one of Steve Bruce's Striker with Ivo Graham available for free over at anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. We'll also be doing the odd exclusive free episode over there. And if you hit follow on Quickly Kevin at Another Slice, we'll be able to let you know about all the good stuff that's coming up over over the next few months. But if you want to subscribe as well, anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. But really what we should say is thank you so much to everyone who's a member of the Quickly Kevin fan club. That is what has kept this podcast going. I'll be honest with you, we don't make much money on advertising. We made a stand against betting that has really bitten us on the fucking arse. Um, so here we are. This is what keeps us going. It's also what allows us to book these top level footballers. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for joining I hope you've enjoyed all of the content so far and all of the content to come. All right, to this week's guest. Man, we have wanted this man for so long. The star of Premier Passions, the star of the 86 World Cup. Oh, just what a man. Just straight away, you're in his aura. You just find he's such a great guy. Enough, enough superlatives. Let's just get into it. Here he is, Peter Reid. Our guest this week is one of the game's most iconic characters, big in the 80s, 90s and beyond. He dominated England and Europe as a player with Everton finishing fourth in 1985 in the World Soccer Player of the Year Awards, just behind Platini, Elkiaia and Maradona. With England, he travelled to the World Cup in 1986 and the Euros in 1988, but he's probably best known on this podcast as the star turn on the 1998 documentary on Sunderland, Premier Passions. <laughs> it's a true honour, an awesome pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, Peter Reid. How you doing, Peter? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, fourth best in the world by, behind Maradona and then played the World <laughs> Cup in 86. I was still... Can you swear on this podcast? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I was still fucking behind him on 86. <laughs> <laughs> How did, did you get to go to a ceremony? Like, was there a th- was it an event when you came forth or did you just find out? Uh, no, it was just through... I think a, a reporter rung me up um, and he said, uh, football reporters vote all through, the, all, all through the world, all these reporters vote, mm. and you've come forth. And I just said to him, I can't remember the reporter, thank heavens. And I just said to him, well, it's anything to do with you lot knowing anything about football. I'm not happy with even coming forward. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being a bit harsh on the lads there. Yeah. But, but have you been player of the year in the... You were player of the year in the UK, were you? PFA. PFA, that's the proper one, right? PFA. Yeah, 1985 and manager of the year in... Oof, 96, I think. Did you prefer being a player or a manager? Oh, or or no, player no. manager? No. The, the best thing about life is playing football. And yeah. the second best thing is getting paid... In life, to play <laughs> don't come any better. You can, you can. Well, funny enough, if if I can just, 
I'll go back to 1971. I'm sorry for going far back to no, no. But I played for a town team called Heighton Boys. Yeah. And we got we won the English schools trophy, but I was 14. I played in the semi-final at Anfield when I was 14, and I played in the final at Goodison Park when I was 14. So I could have ended my career at 14 and have been happy. Were you the best player on Merseyside at that point at 14? Um, no, I was involved in the best team. Funny enough, there was a young lad in, in, our, in our team called Frank Pimlet, and he was mm. a year younger, or about six months younger, but a school year younger, if you know what I mean. Yeah. He was different class, and he went and ended up going to Aston Villa, playing well, but ended up going to Australia to live and play football. But it was a, it was, we had a reunion about a week, and, and funny enough, a certain school teacher at the time was our coach, and his name was Alan Bleasdale. So, oh, wow, I know massive, and he's a good pal. So it was a unique school schoolboy side. Yeah. And, you know, I I had a decent career and, and we all know what Alan Bleasdale did with his playwrights. He was outstanding. Yeah. Um also one one thing just before we start is as a Plymouth fan, I should thank you for selling your eighty five medal for I um I'm sure I I I think I follow you on Twitter and I'd seen it I think it come up. I was unfortunate I went there at a time where it was difficult financially. You know, just after they tried to get that World Cup bid. And, but obviously, I played there with Bolton Wonders, and it's one of them unique football clubs, you know, Cornwall over the Tamar River, over yeah. the bridge. The, the support for that football club and the travelling fans. Oh, it's amazing. It's incredible. I'm going to say it Sleeping Giant. Oh, massive football club. Massive. <laughs> Massive. Thank you, thank you. No one ever says that. Hey, listen, there's, a, there's always a dream out about there in football, and if, if Plymouth Argyle could get to the Premier League, by the way, you'd have to build another stadium. Yeah, I know. Oh, park would be it, too oh. small. I've got a question though. So you sold your eighty-five FA Cup runners-up medal. Yeah. It was specifically to pay for Plymouth's heating bill. This is before the cost of living crisis. No, I'd, I'd done that with my credit card. It was just that with funds to, to keep the club going. But, oh. I, listen, I wasn't the only one who put me, me hand to the wheel, so to speak. The, 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 whole, the, the whole city, town, the whole football club, everyone got involved. And yeah. that's, what, that's what football clubs are. It's community-based. It's their yeah. club. And they wanted it to, to like keep going, keep existing. And everybody got in there, worked hard for it. And it is, like I said before, a great club. But it's, speaking of great clubs, community-based, let's let's wind the clock back to the 80s. You're there at Everton, Howard Kendall in charge. I mean, talk about the things you won. 1984 FA Cup, there, the league in 85, the Cup Winners' Cup, you know, that same year, yeah. the league again in 87. What a team, what a manager. Let's talk about Howard Kendall first. What was it like meeting him for the first time? Well, I played it against Howard um, when I was a young player and he was at Stoke and Blackburn. So I knew of him and I knew of him because he played in in, in that great midfield trio. Uh, they call it the Holy Trinity at Goodison Park, Paul Harvey Kendall. So I knew Howard and um, when he rung me up, I'd, I'd, I'd talked to Jack Charlton over at Sheffield Wednesday and when he rung me up and said, do you fancy coming to, to Everton? I had panic and said about time, and he said to me, 
what have I heard about you? I'm lucky to catch you in. That was before mobile phones, you know. So <laughs> he obviously knew about uh, I like a bit of a social as well as being, you know, <laughs> or so, supposed athlete. It was quite a social club, wasn't it? There was a, a lot. There was quite a kind of how would you put it? A socialising culture. Is that fair to say? I think you'd say football around that time. We rehydrated after games a little bit different than the modern day players. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I can put it. <laughs> but wasn't that, that there was a lot of that was I heard it was like Howard Kendall's idea. He was like, "You lads need to go out and have a drink." Like <laughs> that was was that Howard's philosophy? Yeah, if we got beat in a game, which was we weren't bad, he'd uh, take us out and and have a Chinese. But the day I signed, I went back to my house with a, a, a pal of mine, Neil Watmore, and, and the girls. And I was that happy to sign for Everton. I had I had champagne, he had white wine, red wine. I got on the brandy. And next morning I woke up. I shouldn't have got in the car. I had a cold shower. Went to Belfield to train. And by the way, it, it is the worst training session any footballer has ever had. I couldn't see the ball. I was all, <laughs> the lads are looking around and thinking... Who have we signed here? Who have we? So, anyhow, um, we had we had this session at the end where you had to. They were called doggies run between trees, and and all the lads have written it, and I, and I'm thinking, I'm struggling here, and and the gaffer, our our Kendall goes, you run with me, and I thought, oh thank God for that. He lapped me on every run. I was that bad. <laughs> he lapped me. So I goes in the dressing room. Colin Harvey comes up. Colin was uh, coach. He said he wants to see you. So I've walked into his in, into his changing room, and he's in the bath. You know, like so. I've gone before he said it. I said, "Listen, I got all my hands up, Gaffer. I went out with Neil Watmore. I said, champagne, white wine, red wine, brandy. I said that was embarrassing training session. I, I said, I swear to God, that will not happen again. I apologise to you and the, and the coaching staff." And he looked up at me and he went, do you like a bevy, son? <laughs> and I said, yes, boss. And he went, you've got a great chance at this football club. <laughs> so, now, what's, bri- what's brilliant about that is it, the humour's brilliant, but it's great man management, isn't it? Yeah. You know, because I thought, I thought then, I'm going to run through a brick wall for you. And yeah. that's... That's the sort of man. Yeah. Hey, listen, it wasn't all a jolly up. He, no. he, he was a very good tactical manager before tactics were even talked about. And he was way ahead of his time in his training methods. But I've got to say, uh, as a gaffer, he did look like a social. Which, <laughs> which well, was, that was the time, right? Did you, when you went out in, because obviously that at that time, the best two clubs arguably best two teams in the world were playing the same city in the mid eighties. Yeah. Did you ever see them out and about? Was it like, would you go? Uh, the- well, Rushy, Rushy is still a pal now. Kenny, Kenny's a, a pal. I mean, if I see them, I have a drink. The only thing is you won't get Kenny ever buying a bevy, but don't tell him I said that. <laughs> um, but, you know, Steve McMahon, it, soon as before then, Alan Hansen, Socially, we got together and, and, and mixed. Amazing. We played in derby games. Once that whistle went, by the way, it was a lads a. But you know, and it was it was a little. I think it's fair to say football was more physical then. 
Yeah. He might be better athletes with the pitches, but the pitches, the pitches weren't great and the physicality in the games were, were brutal. But once that final whistle went, we shook hands. If, I, if we hadn't had six pints in the players' lines, do something up with you. <laughs> <laughs> you look at that Everton players from the 80s, like you or Neville Southall or on Twitter, like Gary Lineker or even Pat Nevin, who are quite politicised kind of people. <laughs> Did you sit in the dressing room and talk about Margaret Thatcher and stuff? Well, I wouldn't even mention her name. I, I, and I don't know who you're on about. <laughs> that's, another, that's it. I think you know it. What, what, we, what we did, I mean, listen, I, I, the world is a great place and there's a lot of money in the world. I just think it should be spread out a wee bit more. And I think uh, I was brought up in a council house, a working class area, and I'm proud of that. Extremely mm. proud of it. I've done all right, and and people on Twitter have a go go at me and say I'm a champagne socialist. And by the way, the fucking right, but I don't do that <laughs> <laughs> because because you, hey, you've got to enjoy life. And, yeah. and we did have discussions, but the thing that I got, I I got, you know, me two two of my brothers had to leave Merseyside to get jobs. Mm. You know, one one woman in the merchant navy. One went down south, one's still down south. And that's the way it was then. But the love of the city. And by the way, there was fires in Toxted. It was a yeah. brutal town because the PM at the time, see the way I won't mention the mayor, she, she tried to do our city. Make no yeah. mistake, in my opinion. Yeah. In my opinion. And by the way, no chance. Because if you try to take on Liverpool as a city, let me tell you, Josh, you've got no chance because we'll just bounce back. Yeah. And that's what we did. And we did it through football the comedians, the, the music around the town, and just the, the people, the great people. And I think that about at Plymouth were great people. Manchester, you know, it, it just, I worked in, in Sunderland. Wow, what a place that North East is. Yeah. You know, except when I went to uh, Newcastle, I got called Monkey's Heat all the time, and I don't understand why. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, t- you just mentioned there the football of Merseyside, the politics of Merseyside. You touched on the music of Merseyside, and it's easy to forget that we're talking to a recording artist who has been to Abbey Road Studios now. No less, of course, the FA Cup final song in 85. And like when you watch that back, Peter, you seem to be absolutely loving it. Could you have been a recording artist in another life? No. I'll tell you <laughs> why, I'll tell you why I loved it. It was alcohol induced again. Everything around my life's alcohol induced. I'm, I'm not I'm not that bad. I try to look after myself, but yeah. I think that was here we go. Here we go. Yeah, here we go. Oh, God, There's yeah. footage of you performing it on Wogan. Do you remember doing oh, that? Oh well that's well. When we got it in the green room, it, it, the producer come in and says, you can't have another bevy. He said, oh, <laughs> oh, we won't let you on. So Andy Gray went, well, we're not going on. We're not going on then. And he had two more crates come in. It was great. <laughs> the tradition for football cup finalists and successful teams to issue a record for the delight of their fans and the fury of those who hate them. And with the outstanding season that they've enjoyed so far, it's hardly surprising that this 11 have burst into song. They're cup finalists, European finalists. Only a tap in, Brian, from the league title. It's Everton Football Club. Here we go.
it was this period when obviously Everton were, and it's like, we don't know what would have happened in Europe if you'd got to be in the European yeah, Cup, yeah. but you, you won the Cup Winners' Cup. Yeah. And in those days, obviously, now everyone knows every single player in the Champions League. There's all this scouring and stuff. Was there an air of kind of mystery when you're playing, say, Rapid Vienna in the European Cup Winners' Cup and stuff? Did you know what you're going into? With great respect to Rapid Vienna, I'd watched them play Celtic in a, in a game at Old Trafford where it had to get replayed because some, someone got it by a bottle or something, but it had to get replayed. And Rapid Vienna beat Celtic because I wanted Celtic to win. Yeah. But Rapid Vienna beat them. But it was me, Adrian E. Graham Sharp and Andy Gray. After watching them, I thought, we're going to beat these. I knew, because we great respect to rap of Vienna. I'm not having a go on them. Yeah. We got to the final. We played Bayern Munich in the semi-final. Yeah. Now, they had Matthias, Argentile, Leiby, Holness, Rummenigge, Faffing goal. So, Dremler. So, that was the, that, that semi was the one. I don't think we went there overconfident, but if you're asking me, I knew we were going to win the final. And that's that sounds rather no. big-headed, but it was just the confidence about us. After we yeah. beat Bayern Munich, we knew we were going to win it. A splendid goalless draw was etched out in the Olympic Stadium in Munich to set up a winner-takes-all second leg a fortnight later. It was arguably Goodison Park's greatest ever night. Fergal is onside and cleaning at Neville Southall. Hernes off the goalkeeper. There are two on the line for Everton. But Hernes finds a way past them. Gray goes in. Sharp! The perfect start to the second half. And Everton have recaptured the party move. Stevens with another testing long throw. Fast lost it. A goal. Andy Gray. Gray is onside, played onside by Nagby and Trevor Stephen. It's settled now. Rotterdam, here they come. And like, what was it like winning that final? That was that was that the high point of your career as a footballer, or was it winning the league? Oh, this is a great question. The first major honour, I, I won the, the second division champions as, as it was then with Bolton, which was great. But and I know I know it's not, let's say, sexy now. You know when I won the FA Cup in 84? It was yeah. the first major one. That was it. Wembley, really? The old Wembley, yeah. going up them steps, the old steps, Kevin Radcliffe lifting that trophy. That first one. Oh, wow. It was the bollocks. You know, you should have been playing in that final. Plymouth lost to Watford in the semis. That could have been oh, Plymouth. Oh, did, yeah. I'll tell you what happens. Hey, Josh, not that, I'll tell you what happens. You know, in the old days, when it used to be the sack, when they pulled the balls out yeah. of we were on the bus listening to it. We just chained at Goodison. And we we wanted either Plymouth or Watford with great tech, And we got Southampton. And we got, oh. And then, obviously, like you said, Watford got Plymouth in the other semi. Yeah. Yeah. So the, F, the FA Cup was the, the biggest deal. Because FA Cup final day was just such a yeah. huge deal, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. Winning the league championship, you're the best yeah. team. You're the, but when I was a, a, a lad and, and when I was a, a, a player in the 80s, there was a magic about the FA Cup. Yeah. 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 
which it, which I loved. There's a lot of kind of huge characters in that dressing room, like Gray or Ratcliffe or, or you. But I mean, perhaps the most fascinating was Neville Southall. <laughs> what was he like to play with? He was the only one who didn't drink. Oh, yeah. oh really? Yeah. Honest? Yeah, yeah. I think his, his his dad was a big drinker, so Neville never ever drunk. But he was the best goalkeeper in the world. He used to take, just do things off off the bat. He he'd ring hotel. He'd ring hotel's reception and say his telly wasn't working, and he'd he'd have it upside down on the stand and things like that. He was just he doesn't need, he doesn't need a bevy. He's, he's, yeah. he's <laughs> top draw, top draw. Neville Southall out of the Everton dressing room, well ahead of his colleagues. Really, whatever's been said in there, he doesn't feel relates to him. He's made three transfer requests already this season. And his contract with the club stretches until 1996, and they're holding him to it for the moment. But Neville looks less than happy with his lot these days. You left Everton in 1989 to move south to London, Queen's yeah. Park Rangers, where you spent a year. What was your, what were your first impressions of London? Oh, I loved London because I'd always... Well, when we used to play down there, we used to stay down there. But uh, I stayed in the Royal Lancaster for six months. Trevor Francis, uh, who an ex-teammate of mine for England, was manager, signed me and Nigel Spackman, uh, ex-Liverpool, around the same time. And then I bought a place in, in Gerrard's Cross, just out on the A40 there, and uh, which is a beautiful area. And I must be the only man in the history of the world who's lost money in a house on Jared's Cross. <laughs> because <laughs> because I just moved in, and then Howard Kendall come back from Bilbao and uh, asked me to go and join him at Manchester City. But I had, had a great time, and there were some, some good players there. Kenny Sanson signs, Colin Clark, uh, really good players. Alan McDonald, who was a, he, we've lost him. He was a great centre half. It was it was a really good time. Mark Dennis was there for a bit, so it was it was a lively dressing room that one as well. You yeah. went back to Man City, and then because of Howard Kendall, mm. who then gets sacked, and you become player manager in 1990. No, Josh, Josh, what happened? Everton was struggling, and they come in. And, and asked Howard to go back. Oh, right. And so he didn't get the sack. Oh. So Howard loved Everton. And I, yeah. he asked me, he asked me to go with him. And I said, no, you never go back. It's it's never the same. But he was he was determined. So I stayed and, and put pressure on the then chairman, Peter Swales of Manchester, to give me the players' manager job. I think we, we had a game against Leeds and got beat 3-2, but played well. But the crowd... Uh, 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 Old Main Road, the Man City crowd, got me the job and I loved it. I enjoyed it. It was brilliant. Before we wander too far from your playing career and start talking about player management, I thought, let's dwell on your international career for, for England. I couldn't believe this in research that you only played 13 times for England because it feels like you're there throughout the 80s. Almost. Know, it's yeah. really, like, well, it's mad. Well, what happens when we got promotion and, and when I was a, a young player, I broke my kneecap, right? In a, in a pre-season game, 78, I got back and then on New Year's Day, 79, against Everton in a game that got abandoned, I snapped my crucial ligaments, medial ligaments, missed the year. I got back, broke my leg in two places, got back and then had a cartilage in, in about four years from like 21 to 25. I only played about... 
Theatre games. Bloody hell. And what's yeah. that like? Being uh, How well, do you keep your mental health going? Well, like? It was tough because we had a physio called Jim Edridge who would come in and he saved my career. Yeah, and right. um, if you ever see a, a piece where I win the football, the PFA Football of the Year, mm. I thank him explicitly because I don't think I'd have got back without his rehab and, and his yeah. knowledge on injuries. And um, I, I, owe, I, owe, I owe Jim a lot. And, and when I went to Everton, uh, I failed the medical. I never, I never, and when I went to QPR, they didn't have a medical. When I went to Man City, because um, my leg was dodgy. So, but Howard Kendall, uh, I think I was 60 grand I went for, it said I'm signing yet. But I failed my medical. So a lot of people say, oh, I'm, we can't believe you got 13 caps. I said, well, I, I didn't get my first caps until I was 29. Because right, I, yeah, I was yeah. like, I was injured. Do you think that's why you played so long? Because you played until you were about 40, is that right? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, had a few, well <clears throat> some people would say it was playing, but some people would say it wasn't. <laughs> but, but no, I, I, um, considering what happened, I, I, was, I was very, very pleased with the amount of games I played. I played yeah. over 500 games, and if you lose sort of four seasons, that's a really good amount, that. You know, yeah. So it, it was great, and and um, it just made it all the sweeter. You know, when you, when yeah. uh, the the late great Sir Bobby Robson gave me my first cap, um, it was it was great because, like I said, the FA Cup's great, winning leagues are great. But I played for England under twenty ones on on numerous occasions. But when you get the big one, the first cap, playing for your country is the ultimate. What was Bobby Robson like? Great. Very enthusiastic. Wasn't great with names. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't great with names to Bobby, but he was enthusiastic. Loved the game, and I think tactically he wasn't he wasn't great. Donna was very good, but what, what he had, he had this love of the game. He instilled it in you. I love the game anyhow, but you could see his passion all the time on the training ground. Uh, before games, I mean, team meetings, Christ almighty, you'd need a sleeping bag with a team meeting. He'd love it. <laughs> but he, he got it over to you. He got it over to you what he wanted and he was uh, he was a great character. Lovely, lovely man. You make your England debut at the Azteca Stadium, I think I'm right in saying, but yeah. not at the 1986 World Cup. It was the City Tournament, a warm-up tournament a year before. So that's quite exciting, isn't it? Like going away with the lad, you get caught up in your country and you're going to Mexico. Do you remember that 85 tournament? Yeah, I think there was good teams there. There was uh, West Germany, Mexico, West Germany, and Mexico, and and they were all top top players. So it was it was a fantastic. T- what I would say it, it was tinged with a bit of sadness because Heisel happened and we had a, a, a requiem mass uh, over there. So you know it, it was that, and it, it, we were watching it. Obviously, the broadcast then it was only like mm. CNN. It's not like uh, worldwide now. Yeah. So it was that, but it was a great experience. And to get your, your first cap over in the Az- the Aztec Stadium, some stadium as well. It's it's one of them iconic ones, isn't it? It's a great stadium. What's that yeah. thing above? You know that shadow mm. above the Aztec Stadium. What is that? Do you I know think, what I'm talking about? I think it was the camera that right. Uh, the, it's the only stadium. Yeah, the camera seen. up there, and it was like a, a big seagull flying over. Yeah, one. 
Do you know what I'm talking about, Craig? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That big spider shadow on the pitch. Yeah, that's it, spider. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you beat West Germany 3-0. We interviewed Andreas Bremer, who missed a penalty in this game. He said that uh, all the Germans had the shits from... uh, from from the food in Mexico. Did you know about that at the time? <laughs> no. <laughs> what I would say about that, I played them German players are top players. Top yeah. players. I did not think Lineker got a couple on that day as well. Mm. But um I did not know they, they had the shits. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. They, they weren't they didn't like you no. didn't, no. didn't catch wind of that. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> You met a um. You you also witnessed a very rare thing that day, which was Peter Shilton saving the penalty. Oh yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah, and he had this thing where because he'd done it that way, Peter Shilton would always not dive. He was one goalie that would never guess. Yeah, yeah. He would always dive following the ball. Were you aware of this? I was aware his record wasn't great. I yeah. can't say that. I mean, he was an outstanding goalkeeper, as we yeah. all know. But I was aware his his record. He had a he had a philosophy, didn't he? Where he just stayed there and tried to go. And not choose away, and not try yeah. to read them. So yeah, we were all aware of that. We were all, all aware of that with Shields. Bitbarski getting it through. Will Ron get there? Penalty given. The second penalty that England have conceded in this tournament, and the Germans now presented with an opportunity of bringing it back to one-one as they haul Uwe Ron off the field. Well, it's a fullback Bremer who's going to take it. Can Shilton hold out? Can England keep their lead? Will it be 1-1? Right on half-time. Bremer with the penalty. And Shilton has saved it! Magnificent by Peter Shilton! And England stay 1-0 in the lead. When you met up with England, there's players from Derby or Chilton's at Derby or Forest War, and there's, you know, Everton and there's Liverpool. And like obviously now the England team feels really like United. And then there was that time, 2006, where there was a really divided by club. What was it like in the 80s? Were you all matey or was it? Because I lived in Manchester, you know, like when I went out socially, I met up with Brian Robson and Robbo, very similar to myself, likes it, yeah, you know, yeah. so, so it, there was a sort of a good atmosphere. Teddy Butcher was quite... And Kenny Sanson, the funniest man in the world. Glenn Oddle had a bit about him. You know, Ray Wilkins, yeah. you know, Ray Wilkins, the nicest man in the world. Lineker, we knew from... So it was it was a good atmosphere to, uh, among the players, you know. It, there was not a problem with that at the time. It was it was really good, even though we, we like you to... We used to kick hell out of each other in derby games or when me, me and Brian was it you know when you think back I played in the, in the second division for Bolton yeah. Wanderers against Brian Robson at West yeah. Brom Tottenham was in the second division Glenn Oddle <laughs> Chelsea Ray Wilkins in the second so you're talking about three iconic midfield players yeah. who as young men were in the second division it wouldn't happen nowadays yeah there wasn't freedom of contact. So yeah. it was a weird situation. We Lottie Cunningham, I remember playing against the great Lottie Cunningham at late Orient when he was a kid. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't happen nowadays because, you know, like uh, Liverpool coming to the young kids, Elliot had a Fulham and all the young kids get snapped up by the yeah. Premier League clubs. But back then, we like used to play against each other in the second division and kick out of each other. So we had a, we had a sort of a real admiration for each other and an affinity with each other because of our upbringing. Yeah. 
then you go to Mexico together again the following mm. summer, which is, you know, arguably the most iconic, one of the most iconic World Cups ever. It looks, I mean, it looks for a start absolutely boiling. Was it tough to play in like Mexico, like in that heat when you're used to playing at Goodison Park in November or whatever? First of all, we were based in a place called Cetillo and played in a place called Monterey, which is a desert town. It was warm out there. And then when we got through the stages, we got beat the first game, didn't we? Uh, Portugal. Yeah. We drew with Morocco. Brian done his shoulder. Ray got sent off and I got in the team. So we beat Poland 3-0. Gary, got it. Gary Lineker got it at it. Then we moved from Monterey up to Mexico City, which wasn't as hot as Monterey, but was 8,000 above sea level. So it was altitude. So it was a, it was a tough for the heightened lad, especially. Yeah. <laughs> it was tough for, for all of us physically without making excuses. Yeah. Because obviously the Argentines, South Americans, Brazilians, and it. But, it, it, you know, there were some good teams. Poland had a good team at the, at the time that we beat... Um, the Danes were fantastic. The Danes yeah, were really strong. Spain were the sons. France were the sons. Some of the sides were top drawer. And we, I, I'd agree with you. It was quite an iconic uh, World Cup now. You didn't actually start the first two games, did you? You came in after, like you say, Rob got injured and Ray Wilkins got sent off. But when you came into the team, everything I've read about those games is like the team felt that like you became the linchpin of that. Like you gelled it together. Is that fair to say? I wouldn't, I, I'd say we changed the shape. There was a couple of things happened. Uh, Chris Waddle got injured. He was, uh, so he, he played Steve, the gaffer played Steve Odd on the left. Trevor Stephen come in. I, I come into the middle of the park because we lost Brian and Ray. So I come in the middle of the park and we went from a sort of 4-3-3 to a 4-4. But what he did then, he left Mark Aitley out and he brought Peter Beardsley in in behind Lineker. So we sorted out a, a, a five in the middle of the park with, with Peter Beardsley breaking on to join Lineker. So our tactics changed and our formation changed because of first Ray getting sent off and then an injury to Brian. So, and then an injury to Chris Waddle. What I would say about that tournament, there was really, John Barnes was there and he come on against Mexico. And Barnes, he only played a few minutes. And John Barnes yeah. is one of the best players I've played with and against. So there was abundance of talent there. Yeah, you know, so much depth. Yeah. You've got the fourth best player in the world sitting on the bench for the first two games. <laughs> 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 uh, so that's John Barnes, obviously, that was the Argentine game, which, you know, arguably... You're talking iconic World Cups, arguably the most iconic game mm. of the 80s in many ways. Let's go through it... Um, well, let's start with the greatest goal in history. Can you can you enjoy watching that goal, having been part of it? Or um, well, I, I I do little after dinner speech about it, where they take the piss out of everyone upset myself, and it's quite, <laughs> quite amusing, really. Do, uh, do you wish you'd found him? I wish you'd could have gotten near him. Hey, you won't believe this. I'm, I was in London about two months ago, and Sotheby's at the shirt. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought, I'm going to have a look at it. So I got, I got someone from the... Uh, I stayed in the staff at St. James's, my mate. I got someone to ring Sotheby's, and he said, come up and have a look at it. So I goes up, as a look at it, right? But the shirt there, you won't believe this, who was my roommate in Mexico? Steve Hodge. 
Steve Holmes. He gets the fucking shirt out after <laughs> he nicked the shirt away, honestly. Yeah. And I'm I'm devastated, we're devastated. And he goes, what, what do you think about that? And I went, you swat. <laughs> 7.4 million, by the way. 7.4 oh. million. Oh my God. I was, I was, but, I, you know, he handles the first one. He gets arguably the, one of the greatest goals in, in, in World Cup history. Oji gets his shirt. And then he gets 7.4 million for the fucker. <laughs> Fucking hell. The hurt from that game still keeps coming. All these years later, there's new blows. Ah, oh, hey, but li- listen, you know, you know when I'm out, and and you know, you know when lads have had the bevy. That's all I get. I mean, I really? honestly, God, I had a great career, a decent management, won a few things. Why didn't you fucking kick in? That's all I get. <laughs> honestly, God. And I'm fed up for saying I fucking haven't heard that before. <laughs> been able to control the play in midfield the way that Maradona has been able to do and he's hurting England again here it's a brilliant run it's one of the world great goals it's a great goal sometimes you go all around it and say it's a great piece of work by a, a fine player a great player did you see the handball? Like, did yeah, yeah, I seen it. I, I thought Schultz was a wee bit slow coming out, but I seen it. And then we've run after the Tunisian referee, and he didn't speak Scouse, so we're not. Much <laughs> <happened. That's laughs> you know what I mean? He's got. But what happened when it went, went in? I'm waiting for them to blow, yeah. and then the stadium erupted. So he's given this. He's given. So that's how I. I first come across it because the stadium just went, it was like, oh, ridiculous, the noise come out of it. Oh, and, um, you know, it, 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 hey, they won a 2-1, then they got a great goal, nearly got an equaliser. Barnsley come on and, and terrorised him. Barnsley was brilliant. And then um, it did go off in the in the tunnel, the big tunnel. They started singing about the Malvinas and Terry Butcher wasn't happy and, oh, it was hell on. Hell on. Oh, my God. I was in the piano with the lid down. <laughs> uh, years later, you met Maradona, didn't you? I met him. I, I met him a few times. Yeah. Yeah. Have a look at this here. To my oh. friend Peter. Oh wow! Oh. That's, that's a signed Argentina shirt. So when did you meet yeah. him? I, I met him. I met him at Wembley once. I met him in um, in Dubai once when he was coaching, and I met him when he gave me that shirt in in Jordan. Jordan in uh, it, it was a something to do with soccer X and um, my mate used to run it he he didn't tell me that uh, Maradona was going so he's done me up like a kipper hasn't he so I've I've come in and we we did a bit on stage I think no we did a bit on stage and to be fair uh, obviously Spanish he doesn't speak English but you know the way footballers take the piss yeah he was going going, very bad man and I'm going you twat and then then, (laughs) Then he went, but number two, I too quick for you. Ah, oh, no, he killed me. <laughs> he killed me. It was brilliant. So, you know, and I, I know uh, Schiltz and Terry but, uh, Butcher are still quite uh, yeah, okay about it, but I think you're a long time, Dad. You know what I mean? And what's yeah. happened? If, you know, if we'd have got away with it, we'd have been happy. Would you have stuck your hand up in that situation? 
I wouldn't have got that far forward. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing on England is you then go to Euro 88, where England, despite a great squad, very tough group, obviously, because there's only two yeah. kind of um, eight teams in that tournament. What's that like to be at a tournament where you lose all three games? Is it? I didn't get a didn't game. Play, I though. didn't get a game. But what happened? I mean, the Dutch, Van Basten, yeah. the Russians weren't bad either. It was it was tough for us, and and then without making excuses, Lineker come back and he he found out he had a fever, didn't he? Since, yeah. But Ireland beat us, and and Ireland was the you know had a Jeff had a good, really good side. So overall, we we did not play well. We did not yeah. play well in a strong group, and and that's disappointing because, like you say, when you go through some of the players we had there, it was it was a quality squad. Um, and it was it was really disappointing. It's disappointing. amazing the depth that England yeah. had in the eighties. It's an incredible like group of players. I mean, obviously, yeah. and then none of them got. To, a lot of them didn't get to play in Europe either because of the ban. So it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, that uh, that always. It always. I mean, you'd improve by playing against the best, mm. as you know. Yeah. You yeah. know that's that's a fact of life. So let's go yeah. back to Man City. So that you move to Man City, play a manager. What's it like? Like you, you've been the player, and then suddenly you're the boss. What's that first day like? You know what's amazing? Brian Robson become a player manager. Yeah. Glenn Oddle, Ray Wilkins, myself, Kenny Dalglish, Graham Souness. Oh wow! There was a few of us who did it at yeah. the time, and it was, it was and you, you couldn't do it now, no. not in a million years. And, and and I've got to say, it was difficult then with the media work you know, dealing with players if you leave them out when you're a player as well. You know, it is really difficult. That era, I, I can't believe there were so many. Yeah. Um, and whether it, whether it was because of the quality of player, because I've just mentioned them lads there, and it was some real quality players. You yeah. know what I mean? And it, if you go to uh, Middlesbrough now and they still talk about the way Brian Robson played for them. Yeah. And, you know, Chelsea with Glenn Oddle and Swindon, you know, yeah. so it's, it's amazing. And Suey at Rangers and even Kenny at Liverpool, you know, yeah, Kenny it's amazing. So uh, it, nowadays, not in a million years. Then yeah. it was a sh- short space of time because of the quality and uh, I'd say the infancy of it. You Could know, you... F- football's now massive. You, you just, directors of football, there's COEs, there's oh, the, the massive industry. Then it wasn't that. I mean, yeah. football clubs yeah. are still massive, but it wasn't that intense. Was yeah. you, you always wanted to be a manager? Um, yeah, I thought it was a, na- a natural progression from mm. being a player, especially with my personality. I was one of them players. Uh, um, I'm not being big-headed. I, I could get people going on the park, yeah. you know, so it, it, it sort of was a natural... And we're all different. I mean, I'd do it different than sort of, you know... Ray Wilkins or Glenn Oddle, you know, but yeah. we're all different. We all had our ways of getting our message across to players. And I, I think for me, it was it was a natural progression. I wanted to do that. And, and it felt like you were a natural at it. Your first season in charge, I think you finished fifth with City yeah. ahead of United. So did it? was it immediately when you started doing the job, was it clear that you were really good at it? Well, it, it's listen, 
I think it was the start of Sir Alex Ferguson's uh, career at Man United, and it took him a few years. So, you know, but <laughs> what he wants to do now, it's funny in, in the modern day, you'd have to ask the question. Would, would the likes of Sir Alex got yeah. that much time now? Yeah. You know, yeah. no, no. So it's, you know, it, it was, we got him, we got him going. The main road had a, a, a great atmosphere. And it, it, I, I, I was manager for about three seasons and I enjoyed it really good. First season in the Premiership, I think I was manager. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Finished nine. What was it like being on the touchline? I mean, it's before he is, you know, Sir Alex mm. Ferguson as he is now. Was he an intimidating figure to be part I'll tell you what, there was a there was a reserve team game, we were playing them. And um my assistant come in, Sam Allison said, uh, Fergie's in the um, the corridor there. I says, get him in here. So we got him in. I got I got a big tray of scampi, and we had a couple of beers and had a chat. And, that, and that's the way it was, you know. Yeah. You know, and I've had, had I've had little rooks uh, with Alex over the years when I was at Sunland and when but I always remember once we played at um, Old Trafford and yeah. Sunderland and they beat us 5 0. Do you remember the Cadenard ship where he goes like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After he's against Sunderland. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Hey, by the way, they battered us. So um, afterwards, 5 0, you know. Yeah. So I've, I've, I'm, he's doing his press conference, uh, said Alex. So I've, I've, I've come in, I'm at the back, and he's gone, he's gone in this press conference. We'd have beat anyone in the world today. We were that good. And I thought, he's, he's trying to protect me. And I knew what he was doing. Yeah. He was, he was, we, were, we were poor, but no, yeah. we were saying they'd beat anyone. And I knew, because I'm not daft, I thought, he's yeah. taking the pressure off me. That's brilliant. That's that. great. And I thought, yeah. wow. Take some, and I said in the yeah. office afterwards, I said, I pulled him, I said, hey, that's brilliant. That. Appreciate that. Did you go, because he's obviously famously have this bottle of wine with the other oh, manager. Yeah. Yeah. He is... Uh, very warm human being, and yeah. um, I've got to say, he is a great choice of a footballer, but even a better choice of red wine. <laughs> what does he go for? What gives us... said that, so. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of can you a vintage? Is there like a region he, he goes oh, for? Do you yeah, know? Oh, uh, Montserrat, and oh, he, he loves it, yeah. Oh, he loves I love it. that detail. I love it. Penarol, Everton, Penarol, Everton, yeah. Yeah. Is it, was there a lot of that with managers? Like, because obviously, um, were you having like drinks with most of the managers after the games? <clears throat> after game, like football's really intense. After games, I, I think it's some of the with with a lot of foreign managers. Managers, I don't think it, it, it's the tradition, but certainly it, it, with English, yes, or yeah. Scottish or British. Sorry, British. Yeah. yeah. After the game, win, lose, a draw. You know, get a, get out there and. And, and, and I remember um, when Arsene Wenger first came over and I was at Sunderland, I had a big rook with him at, at Roker Park and we had words anyhow. But over the years, he started inviting me in for the red, red wine and he's another great geezer. So wow. when he first came, it, it wasn't a, a, tra- a tradition he was used to. Yeah. But he embraced it after yeah. that because... Mentally, as a manager, it's so taxing. So after yeah. this one, and so if the opposing managers there, you go in, you go wow, and the, the staff are there, and it, it's quite a nice little environment, yeah. you know, after the game because you 
you all want to win. But it was Do you good. talk about the game in that situation? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'd, yeah. Have a, you'd have a chat about a game. There might have been a few incidents that you disagree on, but, you know, that's, that's the nature of sport. That's the nature of football. Did you ever get so carried away in the, the post-match drinks that you're like three or four bottles of red down and the players have all gone home and you're just left alone in the stadium? Did it ever get... Do you yeah. ever like get that... Yeah. 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 Was there like a one manager in particular? Leave the, car. leave the car. Yeah, plenty of time. <laughs> plenty of time. Who I've are the managers to, that you'd get carried yeah. away with? I've had to get drive, a driver to drive me from Sunderland back to Manchester on many occasions. <laughs> many occasions. Ian, mate. So you you have you do a really good job at Man City. You're like you're there for three or four years, yeah, yeah. and then um, you get sacked. How do you find that? Like, what's that like? As a well, we had a bad start to the season. Yeah. Four games, uh, and I only got a couple of points. And I was at loggerheads with the man, uh, the chairman, anyhow. Like Peter Smiles. Yeah, I wanted some players in. He was saying yeah. we can't do it. We can't do this, and. Um, I'm quite explicit in arguments, so I knew if it, if it didn't win games, I was going to go. So, you know, he, he just, uh, back in the day, he just done it, you know, and that's that's football, as they say. What do you do, yeah. like, the next day? Suddenly you're like, what am I doing with my life now? Yeah, yeah. You do, well, it's, uh, yeah, hey, listen, one thing you know when you go into football management, invariably, uh, uh, no matter how good a job you do, it's just around the corner. And, yeah. and that's that's a, that's one of the things us managers have a laugh about. I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous, yeah. but you do, you know, because that I don't get. Uh, it was an I don't recently. Sean Dyche, you know, what a yeah. job he did. But, and yeah. I went, got you, didn't he? And he, he pissed himself laughing like <laughs> the way we are, the way we are. So, we, and 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 you know, when you get a sack, it's it's amazing how many people ring you up, yeah, other managers, and that's. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, that's really. Oh, nice. After after you get the sack at the City, you do something quite unusual. In that you put the playing boots back on. You go to Southampton. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and play and play for Ian Branford. So like that's a, that's an odd. That doesn't happen very often. No, uh, he rung me up and says you fancy coming. I played about seven games. And do you remember the goal Letizia got against Newcastle where he flicked it over his yeah. head? Yeah, and stuck yeah. it. I played in that game. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> And, and that's another smashing club. Um, so I just had seven games and, and then I played a bit at Notts County uh, for Mick Walker. And then my last game was against Rochdale for Berry. My mate was manager Mick Walsh. And my younger brother, Arshon, was yeah. in the Rochdale team. Oh. And after about 10 minutes, he, he just he was just half control on. And I smashed him, didn't I? Smashed him. And, <laughs> hit him and, and the referee come up and went, I've got no chance today. I've got no. And then, because I've smashed our show, he's now running after me just to do me. And I'm, I'm knocking it off one touch and two touch. And then, <laughs> and then my hamstring and sciatica goes, and I'm, I've got to go off the pitch. And he, our Sean's going, you shithouse. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, mum and dad were in the stands. Brilliant, and that was the end of the glittering football ball. <laughs> what an me. end! That was May history. History. <laughs> then that takes you to Sunderland, which is, you know, if Everton are the club you're associated with as a player, Sunderland are the club that you're most associated with as a manager. Yeah. Incredible job you did at Sunderland. Mm-hmm. Do you have any warm feeling towards that time as Sunderland manager? Yeah, great. I mean, I, I went in first for seven games. They were like. 
fourth and bottom of the old, well, it's a championship mm. now, fourth and bottom, looking like they're going down. And then we stayed up. I think yeah. it was only Bolton, Bruce Rioch was managing, beat us. So we, and then he offered me the job and then we got promotion the following year, which yeah. I didn't think we were going to get, but we did. And then we were starting to build a new stadium. By the way, there was pressure on them because we had to yeah. go up. Uh, right, and because uh, no, we come straight back down, didn't we? Sorry, yeah. we got beat at Wimbledon uh, last game of the season. We went, went down with forty points, forty points. You went down with, and then the following season, building the new stadium, we finished third, Forest and Middlesbrough, and got beat seven six in the playoff and penalties. Oh Oh, yeah, so many iconic it? moments. Like that was one of the most iconic, maybe oh, the greatest ever playoff final. Unbelievable, unbelievable. How was it to be a manager for that penalty shootout when it's getting into like sixes and sevens? How can you describe that feeling? It's yeah, you, you, Everton's nutted. Everton, <laughs> your stomach, your head, your bollocks. Everything's nutted. You just <laughs> knock it all over. It's just, it's an, it, uh, it's just oh, brutal. Seven six then, and Michael Gray knows what he has to do here. Everyone in the stadium knows what he has to do here. Alan Kerbishley not looking, but hoping nonetheless that Michael Gray misses. And he has missed! Illich has saved it! Charlton are in the Premiership! And Illich, the man who a year ago was playing non-league football, has denied Gray with a vital kick. Sunderland are consigned to another season in the First Division. But Charlton are pouring in here on their heroes. And the goalkeeper at the bottom of the pile has made sure that there'll be top-flight football at the Valley next season for the first time in 41 years. Oh, God. Well done, Charlton and Alan Kerbishley, but I feel for Michael Gray. That is hard. Hard than this man, too. Congratulations, Charlton Athletic. Fabulous. But what a way to end what has been a fantastic afternoon. Reedy, well done, Reedy. Straight to Michael Gray. What a tragic, tragic. How did you handle the, the post-game talk in the dressing room? Like, what do you say to a group of players who've just been through that emotional rollercoaster, who've like, performed brilliantly, really, and were just so unlucky? What do you say? I just said, uh, you've been brilliant. You didn't deserve that. We go again next year. And then yeah. I, I done one. But <laughs> Niall Quinn, Niall Quinn got them all together. I know I know for a fact, because I, I, I bought Quinny because I knew, knew him from Man City. Yeah. Big character on the pitch, but even bigger than the dressing room. And he just said, he, I know he, well, he told me afterwards, hey, we go again and we piss it next year. And to be fair, they did. We, we broke, exactly that. We, we broke the points record and everything. And so... They were magnificent, but the crowd stayed with us. I mean, we were getting full houses at the new stadium of light. It was a great time, really good how, time. How involved were you in the creation of the stadium of light? Is that, I mean, are they coming to you and go asking advice on stuff? Or there were certain things. The chairman, the chairman Bob Murray at the time, did a great job. I mean, going if you see the stadium light and then the way they've gone, it's it's an old pit. The way they've gone under, so the atmosphere keeps in. It's a great atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I, 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 what I, what I, I said, what I said to him is, Roker Park's one of the iconic grounds for atmosphere. I played there as a kid, 
50,000. I said, we've got to get that noise in, in this stadium. I said, some stadiums can be a bit cold, new stadiums. Yeah. And to be fair, with the architect, he did just that. It was, it was, it's a great stadium. And the name was quite, I mean, the name now feels quite normal, but that was hell of a kind of, mm. that was a big kind of hit to the boundary to go, we're going to name it after Benfica's stadium. Benfica's right. ground, yeah. Well, it was like, it, it, it was quite clever because it was in, in an old pit, stadium yeah. lights. He named it after the Davy lights, the miners right. lights. So it was yeah. quite, it was quite clever, really, the way he did it. And there's a big, big uh, Davy lights outside the stadium, you know. So yeah, I thought it, and and people laughed at first, but it, it's, it's stuck now. It feels like it feels very natural now, doesn't it? Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah go with but, that. But we actually saw you. I remember in the documentary Premier Passions, you were walking around looking at models to the stadium. So maybe maybe this is the time to ask about Premier Passions. How did you have to get sold on this idea? Because it's, it, I think it was the first documentary like this where cameras are kind of in the dressing room. It had a, like not not since the Graham Taylor documentary have we seen something like this. So was it a tough decision? Well, Bob, the chairman came to me and said, "Listen, you know, Kevin Keegan's been up at Newcastle." Brian Robertson, Middlesbrough, you know, Sunderland. You're, we we need we need to get this club out there. And I said, I, I said, I agree with you. I said I'll do it. I said, but I'm not having him in the dressing room. So he goes, not a problem. So he goes to the BBC and he come back and he said, we won't do it unless we've got dressing room access. So the, the chairman goes to me, what do you think? I said, well, listen, you're the chairman. If you if you want this documentary and you want that access. I'm your manager. I'll do it. I said, in an ideal world, I don't want it. I said, but if you get in anywhere near me, there could be fucking cameras going out the window. <laughs> I've got to say, we've got a relationship with them, a great relationship. I honestly forgot they were there. Yeah, that's the right. It does I, feel you so know when you get you know when you get in the intensity of the game, yeah. you forget they're there. And, yeah. and that's what happens. I, I can honestly, I mean, the times when they, they've shown the times when I'm, I'm getting into a couple of young lads and I'm getting soft as shit, and, but that does not happen all the time, <laughs> as yeah. you know. So, but it makes good TV, doesn't it? But but the Auntie Mary, uh, I, I come from a Catholic background. Yeah. All my effort in Jeff and my Auntie Mary gave me the biggest bollocking I've ever had. She, she said, I'm not speaking to you. I said, What? Your language. I go to mass now and people are talking about oh, <laughs> you want to get the confession, you oh, <laughs> there's one phrase that you use quite a fair bit, which is give it some arsehole. Give it a bit of us. Is, is this unique to you? Is this a phrase that kind of follows you around your career? Ah, not really. I just um, <laughs> your week is piss. I'd show some bollocks, get a bit of arsehole about you. Yeah. But there was a game I, I did it against Arsenal. And we had two young lads. Um, Mickey Bridges was only 18, Craig Russell, 20. And they were playing against Tony Adams, top draw, top draw, playing against, I think it was 
Boldy or Keown. And we, I wasn't getting enough out of them. And I thought, I had to say, get up. But, so I've steamed in. By the way, we ended up winning the game 1 0. And them two lads in that second half were brilliant. So I'm not sure you could do it nowadays. Yeah. I think nowadays uh, society's changed. But he, even then, I knew as a manager who I could bollock and yeah. I had to put me on. That's interesting. Yeah. Like how much of that is controlled? Uh, like, how much of that are you, you know, the passion of the moment is taking you over and how much of it is you like, I know what I need to do here to get the best out of these people? Well, <clears throat> it's it's like my assistant here, uh, Bobby Saxton, was mm. a brilliant one to work off me. So if I was like, heavy, he, come here, son. Boom, boom, yeah. boom, we'll do this, we'll do that. And if, if like, I was, hey, I need you to know, he might go, what are you doing? What do you, you know, so yeah. it was like good, <laughs> good bad, cop, bad cop. Good, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And you come out of it, you come out of it brilliant. Like the whole club comes out of it brilliantly, but it's so clear that, you know, you're A, you've kind of a man of just knowledge and you know what you're doing with it, but also the passion that you have for it. Did you get a lot of good feedback for it? Yeah, I think, like I said, I forgot they were in the dressing room. So when you show a bit of passion, I think that comes across. Yeah. And if it's, if it's not natural, it shows. Yeah. I think that's the best way I could describe it. It's really interesting in that documentary because I think you come across as such, you're so woven into the fabric of Sunderland Football Club. that I remember when you're watching it, you think, I can't imagine this club without Peter Reid. And, and I think that's really crystallised by the fact that after Sunderland gets relegated, you stay around. Like, did you feel like that at the time? Did you feel like, I don't want to say untouchable, but did you feel like you were such a part of what Sunderland was that you knew you had job security? I, th- I think it, there was there was a, a feel-good factor about the club in terms of, you know, when I said before, we got promotion quicker than anyone thought. Yeah. Anyone thought. I mean, uh, I, I, I only brought Paul Bracewell in and Dave Kelly and Paul Bracewell was a great player and, was fantastic. And then when we got promotion and then went straight down with 40 points, I think the chairman was was strong. But the biggest thing, the supporters stayed with us, the town yeah. stayed with, 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 well, certainly me and the players, you know, they were brilliant. One of the kind of iconic things at that time at Sunderland is the front tour of Phillips and Quinn, mm-hmm. which is like the ultimate kind of big man, little man kind of forward line. How much of pairing those two together is luck and how much is managerial genius I knew Quinny so Quinny was nailed on I'd seen Phillips play against us when we played for Watford and you know when you, you, you're playing against somebody and you're thinking he's not bad him yeah. he's not bad him so as soon as I knew his contract was up I was in for him you know and uh, I think Kenny Sanson was the number two there definitely yeah and uh, I asked him about him and he said oh yeah take a chance if you can get him, get him. Glenn Road was manager, Kenny number two, yeah, so that was it. But what I did, young Michael Bridges come through yeah. and I, I bought Danny Dickio, so we had four strikers and yeah. Phillips was out for three months, one season. So I, I was I managed to juggle it about, but certainly them two, I mean, I remember we beat Chelsea for... 4-1 at the stadium lights after getting beat first game of the season at their place when Poyet got the bicycle kick. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Desaye and I think LeBeuf might have been centre-backs and them two terrorised two top-class, top-class yeah. centre-backs. World Cup winners. 
Yeah. Yeah. The, the, Kev, the Kevin Phillips signing is really incredible because the season before you sign him, he only gets four goals for Watford in 17 games in the second division. Yeah. And then he comes to you and becomes Sunderland's record post-war goal scorer. Yeah. Did, was there a moment where you realised this player is like, he's going to be one of the greatest this football club has ever had? Uh, yeah, when he when he come in and, and he trained with his, I thought, he's better than I thought he is, this kid. You know, <laughs> I thought, we, boom. And, and we, we had, Bob, Bob Saxon put, put little shooting drills in. I'm thinking, wow, this kid can finish. Now, it's all right finishing on the training grounds, but can you go and do it on the, you know, in front of 40,000 people? And by the way, he just went out of there. Scored on his first game. Did it? it oh, it's just brilliant. But I, I remember getting into him when we got we got beat three three nil away at Port Vale, and he always reminds me of it. And I went, and you, you sat there. You're at home. I never see. Ah, oh, never see you away from home. So I've got into him early doors. But they them two were were a really good partnership, and and Phillips has had, had a great career as did Quinn. One of the other players that I'm. Um was around at that time, was um, Stefan Schwartz, yeah. who you signed at. We're obsessed. It's come up on the podcast before. They had a clause about going into space <laughs> in his contract. <laughs> I know. He, you, I went, did, were you across this? I, I went, you what? He said, well, uh, you know, if they can get up on the moon at like, uh, space and uh, all that. And I'm thinking, is he taking the piss here? <laughs> so I was desperate to sign him. I said, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, again. Oh, by the way, what a good player. Yeah. And that he 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 got an Achilles, he tore his Achilles tendon playing for Sweden. And uh, that uh, he, he virtually finished him. But he was a really good football, great character. Great character. Yeah. So but yeah. you, you know, you forget you forget how, how many good players. Mickey Gray was a good player, so, some good players, Gavin McCann, Lee Clark. Outstanding. I had Steve, I had Steve Bold for six months from Arsenal. Yeah. What a player. For six months, he was sensational. Oh, on Lee Clark. Well, you were you were the manager when he was spotted. Was he wearing a Newcastle shirt? Or I, had to, I had to sell him, didn't I? Was yeah. that genuinely how did that play out? Well, <clears throat> I think he was uh, at a, a final uh Newcastle shirt. I think he'd had a few sherbets. Yeah. Picture all over the place, and then it's gone viral. Imagine the northeast. Well, yeah. it was all over the country, so it was one of them, you know. Um, and I love Clark. I still love Clark. He now yeah. I still see him, but it, it, it was he couldn't have stayed. Some some things that are your hands as a manager. Yeah, we'll finish off, but in terms of your managerial career, by talking about Leeds, which came after Sunderland. Yeah. I mean, what a difficult time that this was at Leeds. Can you give a sense of like how much pressure it was, and how like kind of was it kind of lawless, like given their financial situation being yeah, at that time? Bondholders in America were running the club. All all the better players had been sold. All the oh, well, not the better players. That's wrong. Some really top players, the Ferdinands, the Keens, the Fowlers, you know, all all sold. So it was a tough time. The likes of Aduku was there. He was a brilliant player. We we stayed up, but it was so difficult. Um, sort of, how could I put it? Sort of the the soul of being ripped out of the football club. Besides the financial difficulties. The whole atmosphere, the soul, you know, it, it, it was a place uh, the players didn't want to be. And that, that, and that's not knocking Leeds United 
or the supporters, because as we we know, we see him now, the unbelievable supporters, and I'm just delighted. I think the back where they belong. We always end on the same question, which is um, let's make it 1983. What no, Joe, well, Joe, I'm going to suggest we make it. So we always ask if we can go back, go back to a certain date and do it all over again. Would you? I'm going to suggest that date should be the 22nd of June, 1986, the World Cup quarterfinal. I'm going to give you the option to go back and, and relive your life in that moment. And by that, I mean, you've got the option to bring down Maradona. Mm. If I gave you that option, would you go back and do it all again? Or are you quite content to leave it where it was in the past? Oh, fucking... By the way, I wake up at night fucking running after him in a dream. <laughs> fucking hell, so you know the answer to that. I'd, <laughs> I'd boot him all over the place. If it came. <laughs> God but, you know... You're a part of history in that in that moment. You are a part of history, whatever way you want yeah, to yeah. be a part of it. It's been a joy talking to the fourth best player in the world. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for doing it, Peter. Thank you. It's been brilliant. My pleasure. You take yeah. care, boys. That was Peter Reed. There we go. I love the fact that like the Everton and Liverpool players were friends and stuff. Just all of that stuff makes me. So kind of, um, you know, when they go the football family and you go, what a load of bullshit. It was back in the day, wasn't it? I loved hearing that. But it doesn't sit right with me that Everton and Liverpool fans are out on the lash, you know. It should be more of a rivalry there, shouldn't it? But, I mean, maybe that just shows what a great guy Peter Reid is, that you just have to have a beer with him and put everything aside. I'd love to have a beer with Peter Reid. If you want to hear more from Peter Reid, go over to anotherslice.com forward slash quickly, Kevin. Join the fan club and there's Peter Reid answering more questions from our fan club members. Plus, already there is next week's episode. Yes, and here's a little taster of Series 11, Episode 2 with QK legend Lee Sharp, available now to QK fan club members. When I went to Leeds under Howard, <clears throat> I mean, Howard, to refer to him, had had a poor season the season before and was trying to change things when I got there. So Ian Rush had come from Liverpool to do a bit of coaching, bring a bit of the Liverpool pass and move ethos. He'd brought Lee Bowie for a bit of energy midfield, Nigel Martin, the goalkeeper. So there was, there was a few of us that had come in to change things up a little bit. Uh, and, and, and after I got there, Howard just said to me, he said to me, listen, son, he said, uh, I know I've paid a lot of money for you. I knew you were good, but I didn't know you were this good. He said, get yourself fit. The left-hand side of the pitch is yours. Go out there, enjoy yourself, take people on, score some goals, get yourself in the England squad. He said, enjoy your football. He said, I'm really glad you're here. And I sort of shook my hands and was like, I think I've just landed in heaven. And then I think we played Man United the week after the beat was 4 0 and he got the sack. <laughs> so that was the end of that. There you go. That's Lee Sharp, extended QK fan club version available to listen in full now at anotherslice.com forward slash quickly Kevin. Now, do you want to end with a quiz? Yes, please. Okay. In the downtime, I bought some old top trumps. Lovely. It's a today's strikers top jumps. And I'm going to tell you, it's not today's strikers. It's strikers from, I'm guessing, around 1990. Michael and Chris, are you willing to go head to head on a game of today's strikers top trumps? Absolutely. So what I want you to do is you each get a go, like play your cards, right? See how many you can string in a row. Okay. Higher okay. or lower. You can choose. What would you like to play, Chris? There's, you're going to get two rounds at this each. Would you like to go with the year they were born, their height, their weight, the most goals they've ever scored in a season, or their international goals? 
Got to go with most goals ever scored in a season. Okay. Yeah. We're starting with Alan Shearer of Southampton. 16 goals in a season. Are you going to go higher or lower for your next card? Oh, I don't even know who the next card is. Okay. Um, well, what year is this? 1990. Oh, it makes well, no difference. It doesn't make any difference. 16 <laughs> goals in a season. Uh, I'm going to go... I'm going to I'm going to go lower. Lower than 16. Yeah. It's Brian McClare. <sighs> Surely. Who scored 35 goals for Celtic in the 86-87 <laughs> season. <laughs> it's a zero for Scott. Oh, no. Okay, Michael. Yeah. To win the first round. Okay. You want to go date of birth, height, weight, maximum season goals or international goals? I'm going to go um, international goals. Okay. Dean Saunders, 12 goals for Wales. Okay. Higher or lover? I'm going to that's say... It's a tough one. Oh, a tough one. I'm going to say lower. It's Bernie Slaven of Middlesbrough. One international goal. You want to continue to see how far you can get? Absolutely. Higher or lower than one? Higher, obviously. 11 international goals. Colin Clark of Portsmouth. Higher that's or lower than one. 11? Uh, I'm going to say Lower? Lower? Well, correct. It's Mick Quinn. No international goals. <laughs> this is a run and a half. Higher or lower than zero? Obviously higher. Correct. Niall Quinn, 11. Higher or lower than 11? Do I break the pattern or do I... I'm going to say higher. Incorrect. It's Frank McAvenny. One uh... international goal. Will you take the round. Skull, yeah. you are... I'm going to score, Michael. One, two, three... Four. So you're four nil down, Skull. Okay, here we go. We'll make Michael play first so that there's at le- least a bit of excitement in the final uh, <laughs> section. Do you want to go born height, maximum season goals, or international goals? You can't go with what's already been had. So it's birth, height, or weight. Uh, I'm going to go birth. You've got to go older or younger. Okay. John Fashionu, born 1962. I'm going to say older. Incorrect. Tony Cotty, 1965. Here we go. It's made it a game. Skull, you need four points to draw, five to win. Do you want height or weight? Uh, Let's go height. Okay. Cyril Regis is six foot. Oh, Sarah, okay. Uh, Let's go lower. Correct. Mo Johnson, five foot nine. Higher. Incorrect. Peter Beardsley, five foot eight. Michael (laughs) takes it. The stitch up. It was a lot of fun to play. Thank you for that, Michael. How would you like to end the show? Really, there's only one song. Neil and Christine Hamilton, full version, please. <laughs> yes, please. Thank you very much. Good Thank stuff. you for listening. Stuart Slater. See you later. What should we do today, Dolly? Well, let's make a World Cup song. World Cup song? Don't be ridiculous. You can't sing and I know sweet F.A. about football. What difference does that make? Everybody else seems to be doing it. There is a team whom we call England Cos they're all from this pleasant land Not use your hand. It's watched by people on their tellies. 
on shirts and big beer bellies. England in Germany. England are jolly tea at the pool. And scoring goals. England in Germany. England we all agree. We're going to win. Managers, a chap from Sweden. With glasses and a balding head. Balding head. Sven picks the team and chooses tactics. And also likes to score in bed. He plays a 4-4-2 formation. A bit of fornication. That's why we say... England in Germany. England are jolly tea at football. And scoring goals. Come on, sing up! England in Germany. England, we all agree. We're going to win! 